I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. I'm really excited to open this season of the podcast in conversation with my good friend, Kat Calvin. Kat is the founder and executive director of Spread the Vote and the co-founder and CEO of the Project ID Action Fund, organizations that are dedicated to helping people get their ID. You know, that little piece of plastic in our wallets that most of us take for granted. We use our IDs to get jobs, housing, and medical care, just to name a few things that we need ID for. But recovering your ID or getting an ID issued if you've never had one is incredibly hard, and it's a financial hardship for a lot of people. There are 26 million Americans who don't have ID, and this is something Kat refers to as a crisis, a uniquely American crisis. Kat joins me to discuss her new book titled American Identity Crisis, Notes from an Accidental Activist. In the book, she chronicles her journey as an activist and organizer and walks us through the growing pains and the failures of the early days after starting Spread the Vote. And we get to see some success stories as well. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kat Calvin. Congratulations. Thank you. Happy book birthday. Thank you. Well, it's tomorrow. I'm and thank tomorrow. You. I'm so, so excited. I can't believe it. Also, you can see my pants hanging. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. I'm in a hotel and I'm, this is the bathroom. I have my suitcase on the bed and then the laptop like perched on top of it. And it's boring <laughs> in New York. So my pants got wet. And so I had to hang them to dry. And I just realized they're totally in the bathroom. <laughs> You know what? That's that's okay. That's okay. Because I think the book kind of sets up the fact that you're on the go, right? You've got things to do. You've got people. Right. You've got IDs to get, right? And so this exactly. is kind of fitting. So that's good. You know, sometimes you got to hang up your pants and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the title, American Identity Crisis, Notes from an Accidental Activist. And I just want to say I really loved reading this book. I really love the book. It's riveting. It's funny because you're funny, right? If anyone knows you in person, they know that you're funny and you can see your personality come through. And also just because because we're friends, I know how much heart you put into this book and how much heart you put into your work and all of the energy that went into this. So it's really nice to see it out here in the world. And it's just really good. I really enjoyed it. I'm not just saying that as a friend. Um, <laughs> although I would tell you that anyway. Well, I think that it's, it's nice, even though you're a friend, like, you know, you spend so much time. I mean, I finished the book like a year and a half ago and it's just sitting there and, you know, not a lot of people see it except like the copy editors and your mom. And so now that like people who are not related to me are finally seeing it, it's just, it's terrifying. Like tonight's the first book of it. And I'm just like, I don't know, are people going to care? Like what's going to happen? Is it going to show up? Right. And like, just having like you read it and tell me that you like, it just actually means a lot because it's like finally getting out there. And, you yeah. know, it's not so embarrassing that you canceled the podcast and made up some sort of, like, stomach flu <laughs> to get out of it. <laughs> no, I would never do that. And does your mom like it? That's the that's the question. Well, I mean, yeah, but she would like anything, right? Like, I draw a okay. figure. Okay. And she's like, Picasso, so that it doesn't, you know, you need outside non-mom opinion. <laughs> well, anyway, I, was, I, was, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up, but it's really apt that one of the opening scenes is in a bar. <laughs> I mean, given the way that we met, because I remember this story, you don't remember this story, but we first met in DC, we were at some conference, right? And we were in the audience of a panel and there were like really fancy people on this panel, like really fancy writers. And this was the first time we'd met in person. And I think one of us texted the other and said, you know what, I need a drink. It was like shortly after the 2016 election and we were all just frazzled and we, we slipped out somehow and you showed me a great like bar, a great, you know, cocktail bar. And, and you know, it was the beginning of a, a winning friendship. So, friendship. but I want you to tell me, because I think this is really interesting in the introduction, you talk about working as 
a voter protection worker or volunteer. You're working mm-hmm. in the capacity as an attorney, right? And, and that was in 2008. And you contrast that with 2016 when you were working in Las Vegas doing the same work. And you said it was just so stark. The energy was just so stark between the 2008 election and the 2016 election. Tell me about that. It's funny because I, I just the other day was with someone from Dayton, Ohio. And I was like, I have one Dayton story and it's the best. So for folks who don't know, I, voter protection is a thing that a lot of different organizations, like the Lawyers Committee does the best voter protection in the country, but also Dems. Republicans now, they were under a, <laughs> an injunction for a long time and weren't allowed to do voter protection because they actually weren't protecting the vote. Shocker. Now they're, they, the consent decree ran out, they're allowed to again. But essentially what it is, is uh, being a person who goes to the polls and make sure that everything is going all right, helps with issues. If you see issues reporting it, uh, they like to have attorneys doing it, um, but you don't have to be. But it's something that I started doing in law school and really, uh, you know, I love doing it. But in 2008, I was in Dayton, you know, it was the Obama election. I was in a black district people showed up like I had to be there at like 4 a.m. and there was already a line and there was like a party and even though there was like a, a sheriff's car parked there trying to look intimidating nobody cared everybody was so happy <laughs> everybody was like I'm voting for Obama like it's gonna be great uh you know and it was this like really joyful experience and you know there were there weren't a lot of um like serious issues with voter suppression or anything like that. But, you know, there would be people who were in the wrong place or this or that, and we could, like, help direct them or whatever. But for the most part, it was just kind of a big party. Everyone was really excited. And then after we went to uh, watch the election returns in this, like, hidden gay bar in Dayton, which was amazing. <laughs> oh, and actually, my friend was like, I used to go there when I was in high school. And it was like, it looks like a brick factory outside and an inside. It's a very colorful gay bar. And that's where I watched Obama win. And it was just like really amazing experience. <laughs> and so then in 2016, I was doing voter protection again. And I went to Nevada. And we were in the suburban people who don't know Vegas think it's just the strip. But actually, there's this like, They've got so many parks. It's a whole thing they made, a uh, deal they made with the casino. Yeah. So there's a lot of like really lovely suburban areas and houses and parks and everything. And we were, you know, at a school and I was there with two other lawyers. And when we showed up, look, there was no joyful line or anything. Everybody was voting under duress either way in 2016. And we showed up and it, it was me and then two white lawyers. And there was this older white lady and they, they always rope off this very small area. Like I am currently in the smallest hotel room in New York City. And the area that we all had to sit in for voter protection was smaller than this room, which is remarkable. Um, <laughs> and so the lady who was there, she wouldn't tell us who she was with, but she shook hands with the two white lawyers and like would not shake my hand. And I was like, well, we're starting off great. And then she went to tell us who she was with, but all of her paperwork had Trump in very big letters. So we're like, lady. And then she like, <laughs> went off like surreptitiously and like made a phone call. And then two other white Republicans came and we were all like packed in this little area. And the way that it works is like, usually there's someone who stays inside the polling place and there's one or two people who are outside and you have to, you know, like more than a hundred feet away, um, but to answer questions or to help people or if someone gets rejected to be able to figure out why. And then we have a tool that the Dems do called LBJ, which is great, that you can <laughs> sort of report in on what's happening uh, so that people know and if there are real issues and there are like law firms and so we can sort of call and escalate issues. So it's a whole thing. It's a whole system designed to protect the vote. There's a very diverse group of people coming in and the our counterparts 
did everything they could to intimidate people. They would, every time we were talking to a voter and we were 100 feet away and they would come yelling, voter intimidation, voter suppression, they're too close. And they'd be like, lady, and there's always a line. You always know where the 100 feet is. Uh, they would right. write down very ostentatiously the license plate of every brown person who showed up to vote. There was this black woman who was amazing and there was like a nursing home that was a few blocks away. And so she was walking groups of people from the nursing home and like bringing them to vote and then walking them back. And they were like, they called the police on her. Like it was just a nightmare. And the whole day we just kept saying, you know what? Hillary's going to win. And, like, we will be able to move on. This is just, like, just being really hateful. And so then at the end of the day, they left as soon as the polls closed. We stayed to help clean up and everything. Because I don't know if any of you have ever worked the polls. The cleaning up and setting up is the worst part. My mother is a poll <laughs> worker every year well, until COVID. And, like, I would always have to come in and help clean up. But it's just a real nightmare. There's a lot of machinery. Like, they do not get paid enough or enough appreciation for what they do. And my job was to keep tracking the polls. And I'm sure we all still have PTSD from the New York Times Beetle. <laughs> yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah. I was refreshing and refreshing. And I was like, you guys, this isn't, is this broken? You guys, this isn't right. Like something's not right. And it was just like a nightmare. And so afterwards we were all like, we're going to need to be at a bar. And then we went to my favorite resort in Vegas and sat there and then watched, you know, the, the worst happen. And I think that the thing that made it even so harder that night was that we had just that day dealt with all of these really awful, really racist people. And then we knew yeah. like those people just won. And like, that's now who's running our country. And it was such a nightmare and it was just such a contrast from 2008 that it just, it really made a really big impact on me as far as like, Oh, this is, this is, is actually a very big deal in a way that I don't think that we are going to understand for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to unpack in that story. I just, first of all, you're going to have to take me to this bar sometime, the Cosmopolitan, oh, I think it's called. Absolutely. You're going to have to take me there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so uh, but the thing, <laughs> but the thing that struck me though, is that first of all, I didn't know that Republicans were barred from doing election voter protection because of course we all know that they don't really protect the vote. So that makes sense, but I didn't know that they were actually barred. But what's striking to me is that these were volunteers. They were constituents just like you. These aren't elected officials, right? Yeah. And, you know, the voter suppression that's kind of rampant in this country, it could not work as well as it does without the complicity of ordinary citizens, right, who yeah, were well, harassing these black and brown voters. Right, everything. But, you know, it's really interesting just to see a personal story and an anecdote to show how it works. We know it intellectually, but to hear it was a different thing altogether, for me at least. This is the case with every, you know, fascist movement. Every, you know, I've, I've been uh, listening to this really excellent podcast about World War II. And, you know, when you just look at sort of every situation in history it's like well if it's just the leader like people always would ask me like what do you want to say to donald trump i'm like nothing i don't care about trump i have words for every single person who is supporting him and who is holding him up and who is helping him because those are the people who need to be held accountable because trump's crazy but trump could just be a crazy guy in a bedroom if it wasn't for all of these people who were willing to hold him up and this is where i have a real issue with uh, you know, we have we have CEOs who are con artists and liars and whatever, and we send them to jail, but we don't send all of the staff who made their work possible, right? Elizabeth Holmes would just right. be a crazy, uneducated blonde if it wasn't for the hundreds of people who were willing to do her bidding, right? And, like, they should yeah. all be in jail because it takes everybody. If it's just one person, nothing happens. Right, 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 right. 
So I'm curious, you started Spread the Vote, and I can, I can understand the emotional context of, you know, how this happened, right? But you started Spread the Vote, I think, just a few months or a month even after the, the 2016 election, and it started with a tweet, which I didn't know. I didn't know you started with a tweet. Um, <laughs> yeah. But voter suppression, it takes a lot of forms, right? They toss out voters, they toss them off the rolls, there are long lines, they're closing polling places, right? But you said after the 2016 election that there was one issue that could have resulted in a different outcome in the 2016 election, and that was voter ID laws. So how so? You know, can we quantify that? How do we know that that could have resulted in a different, different outcome for 2016? We can look at the difference between the margins of victories in different states and the registered voters who don't have IDs, right? So if we look at, for instance, Wisconsin, I think the margin of victory between Hillary and Trump was something like, look, it's been a long time, but I think it was like 14,000 votes or something, right? It was very close. But there are over 200,000 registered voters in Wisconsin who don't have voter ID. And those numbers are the same across the board. And this is because there are 26 million American adults who don't have photo ID, right? And so when you look at uh, the difference between how many people are registered to vote and how many of those people actually vote, that gap is always bigger than people who turn out on either side. The biggest group in the pie chart of voters, there's like voted for candidate A, voted for candidate B, didn't vote, and then the biggest piece is registered but didn't vote. And I lot, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's really hard to vote in this country. There's a real lack of education. There's lack of accessibility. There's a lot of things. But it's also that 26 million American adults don't have ID, and you need ID to vote in 36 states, and you have hundreds of thousands of people in each state who are registered to vote but don't have the ID that they need to. Yeah. And that's why you call it a crisis, I presume, right? And I actually have never heard that phrase used before, the American ID or identification oh. crisis. It is a crisis. It is. I mean, I, I call it a crisis for reasons far beyond voting, right? Like voting right. is critical, sure, but it's actually a life or death issue for people on the streets, right? You can't get a job without an ID. You can't get housing. You can't get health care. Most food banks will give you food without an ID. Shelters will give you a bed without an ID, right? Like it is actually a life or death issue. You know, I live in a city where 75,000 at least people are sleeping on the streets and most of them don't have ID, but you need an ID to access social services or Section 8 housing or to get into the motel rooms that they're converting to temporary shelter, right? Like anything. And so it is for me and the reason that we started to spread the vote and then expanded to Project ID is that it is a crisis because we have 26 million Americans in this country who can't get a job or shelter because they do not have ID. And that is not just a crisis for them, but for the entire country. And if we don't solve that, we can't solve any other issue, including the voting issue. Right, right. It is life or death for a lot of people. Um, you know, tell me about your your very first client, if you remember. I know you remember because you wrote about it in the book, but tell me about your very first client. <laughs> uh, sure. So Miss Ella May, um, I was in Georgia. We started in Georgia, again, because when we started, we just were thinking about this in terms of voting and then very quickly realized, oh, no, this is a much bigger issue. We need to think about it a different way. Um, but we were in Georgia and um, I talk in the book about how difficult it was for us to find our first clients. And then Miss Ella May was sent to me and she was this incredible, really kind older lady who had several forms of cancer. And this young man who was um, a family friend had been trying to help her. And she was limited on the kinds of healthcare that she could receive because she didn't have an ID. And so we started trying to help her. And, you know, it was early days. So there were a lot of things we didn't know then that we know now, but also she was a very, you know, older lady. She was from rural Georgia. She didn't have 
a birth certificate or any documents. And so we went through this struggle for months and months and months and months trying to help her get an ID and then trying to help her get a passport and trying to figure out what to do. And what happened is she, she passed away before we were able to help her get an ID, which had been rejected so many times, you know, we had been just doing everything and, uh, and then she passed and it was, it was a really hard first lesson because, you know, what it did was really hit home for me again. Like, oh, this is life or death. This isn't just about voting. Like this, this is about people who actually will die. Um, and she is not the last elderly client with cancer I've had who has needed an ID either to get off the streets or to get healthcare or whatever, or people who have had a lot of other life-threatening issues. And it, that is that was the thing that really taught me like how important this is and how difficult it is for people to get IDs. As a person who has never had a problem getting an ID, right. I didn't really understand until my very first client. And I realized like, oh, oh, I now I get the problem and I understand how serious it is. Right. You mentioned that in the book, you were talking about how in the early days of Spread the Vote, your volunteers would go out and try to help people. And then the people who needed their IDs, you know, they were trepidatious and they were suspicious, really, you know, which makes sense. And there was this disconnect between the volunteers and the people they were trying to help, primarily because their lives were just so different. So was that a big hindrance for you and your team in the beginning, bridging that gulf between the volunteers and the people that you help? I mean, you know, we went in and we were saying like, hey, do you want this free voter ID so you can vote? And people were like, I need an ID for a job. It's like I have a safe place to sleep. And yeah, we had to realize like really quickly, like, oh, I mean, that was that whole first few months was realizing we are completely on the wrong track and we need to serve people based on what they need and not what we think they need or I'm um, or what we want them to need. Right. Like it can't be about like, oh, we just want more people to vote uh, because maybe they'll vote for people we want them to vote for or whatever. It has to be about, oh, this is the real issue. And this is, you know, I, I learned a lot. I'm, I'm a, an early 2000s startup kid. And so I, I was always obsessed with lean startup like everyone else. And so one of the things that I told the team when we first got started was, look, we're going to jump in and do this, but we're at version 1.0 of what's probably going to be like version 22. But we've got to get on the ground and figure out what we're doing and figure out if this is going to work. And I was glad that, you know, I had prepared myself and everyone else for that because it took a very little time for me to realize we have to change everything that we're doing. We, we have no idea what the issue is. And, and I think that that is... It's a lesson that I definitely took away. It's a lesson that I, I think we all, as people who are serving um, folks who are underserved, need to learn. You know, there's so much privilege that comes with even being able to start a nonprofit and being able to do this work. And so the people who start are almost always not the people who are actually needing the help. And we have to take direction from them and we have to be willing to learn what is actually needed versus whatever it is that we imagine it is. Right. You know, that story about Miss LMA, um, it's so moving. I think that's what makes the book so so great is that there's so many moving stories. You interweave their stories with your own story about, you know, kind of growing as this activist and this organizer in this space. But her story in particular, and you talk about birth certificates in the in, in your book quite a bit and about how when you're born, you're given this piece of paper, which means everything. Like it's the key to everything. And I hadn't thought about it in that way because I have two kids. And, you know, when I when I had my kids, you go to a hospital, they make it really easy. There are all these people are staffed to help you that, you know, you get your birth certificate, you get your social security number shortly after that. And that's it. Boom. Your kids have the, the ID that they need to move forward in life. But, you know, it dawned on me 
what would happen if something happened to me and my husband, right? Our kids don't know where their birth certificates are. They're, you know, they're little, they're, they're in a safe somewhere <laughs> along with their social security cards. Like what, what if something happened, something tragic, and they didn't have access to that? Then they would be on the same road as a lot of people that you help. How do most people that you end up working with, how do they lose track of things like their ID or their driver's licenses? How does that happen typically? Uh, a lot of ways. I mean, you know, we work with a lot of folks who are unhoused. And as you can imagine, if you do not have a home, you don't have a safe place to keep things. And so they get lost, they get stolen, they get swept by the police, uh, they get washed away or wet in storms or whatever. It's very, very difficult to hold on to documents when you are unhoused. So a lot of a lot of that is, is the consequences of being on the streets. Uh, you know, we have a lot of folks who are formerly incarcerated and they had an ID when they went in, but then they got out and either it had expired or the jail threw it away or both. And so then they don't have an ID. They don't have the funds for an ID. They may not ever have had their birth certificate or may not have it now. And getting a birth certificate without an ID is really hard. And so they don't have it. Uh, you know, we work with a lot of seniors who, you know, one of the chapters in the book is all about sort of how we got into this problem. And it mm -hmm. is because we made the requirements to get an ID so much more difficult after 9-11. And so you have a lot of seniors who, you know, 20, what was it, 22 years ago, you know, before that, were able to go in and you could get an ID without a birth certificate. Uh, but now you can't. And there are a lot of elderly people who were either born in rural areas or if you were black and depending on what town or where you lived in, your chances of getting a birth certificate were pretty low. You know, a lot of people were born at home. Uh, and so they don't have birth certificates. And getting, you know, we had a client and he was an elderly man in his 90s from a small town in Texas and he never had a birth certificate and the way for us to get all of the paperwork you need in order to get someone a delayed birth certificate which is almost impossible in every state uh, was that we had to like get something from the ch the church where he was you know, baptized except that that had burned down and the school that he went to had been torn down he was in his 90s right? like the, the structures that he we could have used didn't exist and so according to the state of Texas, he didn't exist. And, you know, so you can't get a delayed birth certificate for someone who never really existed and for whom the original pastor would be 150 years old, right? And so then you end up trapped um, in this situation. You know, we have a lot of former foster kids who uh, never get their documents or, you know, foster youth end up unhoused at absolutely astronomical levels. Uh, they end up, we have this thing, you know, my next crusade, kids get unadopted, which is infuriating and just dropped on the street. And then they don't have documents. A lot of times we have foster youth who their names were changed so many times that they don't know where their names were changed or what county clerk or what name has social security has for them, et cetera. Um, and so they, they don't even know where to begin to try to get an ID. One of the common tactics of um, domestic abusers is to lock up the documents of their victims so that they can't leave. And so we get a lot of people who have fled and they just left with whatever they could or with their children and they don't have the documents that they need to get restarted. So there are a lot of different ways uh, that people end up. And, you know, we also were in a lot of areas that are storm prone, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, right? right? And you, you have a hurricane come through, it washes your house away. You don't have your ID, but you need an ID to get FEMA money. Right? And so, uh, you know, we've had people whose houses have burned down. I mean, there's so many different ways that people end up not having documents and then not being able to get them replaced. Yeah. You know, I always learn something new from you. So I have to ask about this. I think we've talked about this before, but I didn't, I didn't really go into it, but kids are being unadopted. What's happening here? 
it's it's so cruel. You know, you have uh, parents, foster parents, and they adopt kids, and they just decide they don't want them anymore, or maybe they don't, you know, they're not perfect, or they don't behave well, or whatever. We have this young man, and the day he turned 18, he was still in high school, his adopted foster parents, or, you know, adopted parents just dropped him on a corner and said, you're on your own now, and didn't give him any documents or anything. And so he found us, and we had to actually go through a, a congressman to be able to help get his documents so we could get him an ID. And then our, our staffer in Texas, who was amazing, found a family for him to live with so he could graduate from high school. But he just, he turned 18, they dropped him on the corner. And it, it happens a number of foster youth and former foster youth we work with who were just abandoned by the people who were they were supposed to take care of them is it's 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 so shocking if i had any hope left in humanity it would take it away from me yeah. like, it's unbelievable he wasn't even out of high school he was still in high school he was still in high school well but, okay so yeah that i did not realize that that was a thing and yeah but you know there's a really good line just going back to what we talked about about you know there are bigger problems than voting which you you know quickly found out working with these people and there's a, a really great line an analogy in the book that says something like focusing on IDs for voting was like trying to end climate change because our swimming pools are getting too hot. The ID crisis is much bigger than, than that, right? So tell me about what that was like, you know, approaching these people who said, you know, do you need an ID to vote? And they said, no, I have these bigger problems. Was that awkward? You know, what were those conversations like, you know, that evolution and that moment when you had that insight? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it was pretty horrifying at times and I'm deeply ashamed because we would ask people if they need IDs and people would slam the door. Uh, we would ask people at bus stops and they would run away. Like we were, it was not a good situation. We realized really quickly, like we have to stop doing this. We are scaring people. And I think that, you know, for, for me, there were so many emotions in the beginning because, you know, I knew there are so many people who don't have IDs, but why can't we find any? And why won't anyone talk to us? And like, none, nothing was working. And it was because I needed to understand, A, why people need IDs, and B, what the, the avenues were, the channels that would allow them to trust us. Once we figured all that out, then we, you know, now we, we literally cannot keep up with the number of people who need IDs. It's, it is not, like, it's, it's actually a problem. Demand is so overwhelming because I just can't help 26 million people. But it took a lot of time. And so it went from, you know, frustration and like feeling like a failure and all these people had donated to help me get started and then they were like how many ideas did you score and I'd have to be like zero like <laughs> my dude you know and like people you know I would have even when we started getting ideas you know we had this the, uh, the brother of a very big A-list actor who somehow got in touch and like wanted to support and he went on and on about how like never stopped talking about how he was Buddhist and blah 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 and I live in LA enough to know that if you white guys who never stop talking about being Buddhist <laughs> Are you guys you want to stay away from? Um, <laughs> and it was literally like a, a few months in, and then he was like, "How many ideas did you, you have you gotten?" And I was like, "Like forty something." And he literally like hung up, and I never heard from him again. And it's like it made me feel like such a failure. Like people made me feel like such a failure. And I was like, "I'm just getting started," you know. But it's like, and like the number of people, this woman was like, "Well, I would introduce you to Hillary Clinton, but I mean, you just those numbers are nothing." And I'd be like, "It's been four months. Like give me a break," you know. And like, or people just the number of people who really still are just like. You know, it's just not a, it's not a big enough issue. We just don't care enough. Or who would say, you know, you just you're never gonna actually make this work. And 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 it was really hard because there was so little faith that we could do this. Um, and we were, you know, no one had tried to do this in this way. And so like it it was it was really really difficult to try to sort of sustain. When at the same time, nothing was working. Or then you know, and so then it it just it it 
I don't know. I think that there was just, there was a real moment of clarity of realizing, oh, this is how we have to change. And then figuring out the steps to do that. And so then when I got to Virginia, which was where I went after Georgia, I'm, and realized, oh, we have a trust issue and a, a, a concept issue. We're going to start getting people DMV IDs because that's what they really need. And we have to work through trusted partners. Um, and so we found a, a food bank that was willing to partner with us. And we went the first day and like set up a table and we had built this like all new system uh, for like an intake form and a database. And we were like going to test it out. We were just getting set up. And this woman at the food bank just yelled, these people are here to help you get IDs. And a line formed around the building immediately and wow. we literally never got our laptops out like thank god the system we set up worked on phones because immediately there was a huge line and we were just on our phones and just for hours just sitting there helping people and getting their stories and getting their information blah 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 and that was when we realized like oh like I got in my car after and just like cried and I was like oh my god this, <laughs> this is it this is how we're supposed to do this and from there it was just like it was on it was gangbusters and then it was figuring out well how do we how do we get birth certificates and like actually figure out how to do it but like it was all about listening and you know having to go through that failure to figure out I need to go on a new path the path that I'm on isn't the right one and then finally getting to the right one Right. And I, again, I love that journey that you take us on throughout the book, um, because this is really hard. Like even once you figured out a streamlined way to do this through these trusted partners, it probably still took a long time. Right. And you mentioned this in the book. There's a line that you say that, you know, getting an ID is difficult by design. Right. Explain that. Like, why is it difficult by design? Who made it that difficult and why? Yeah, well, it's difficult by design because of 9-11. Right. So for most of us who are older, I'm, you know, then, and we're getting ideas more than 23 years ago, you know, you probably remember it, it, that it didn't feel this hard. It's because it wasn't. You used to be able to just take a state ID from another state. And like, if you were from Texas, and you had a state ID, but you moved to California, you could take your Texas ID to California and they give you a California ID. You know, there were all sorts, all sorts of documents that you could take in but to get an ID, so it wasn't nearly as, as strenuous as I, as it is now. It, you know, there were a lot of things that were that were a lot easier. The problem is the 1911 terrorists had something like 36 state IDs that they had gotten legitimately, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is where real ID comes from, because the 911 Commission was like, we need real ID, uh, which is probably never actually going to be implemented, but <laughs> we're still faking it. But <laughs> What happened under the radar is that every single state immediately changed their ID requirements. Because the fact is, for most states, it's not actually statutory. Uh, in most states, it's just like one person is the head of the Department of Transportation. In D.C., it's literally just Muriel Bowser, right? Like, it's just usually one person, maybe a committee. There are very few states where it's fully statutory, where they have to get any sort of approval to change residency requirements or anything. And so almost overnight, every single state made it much more difficult to get an ID. They increased the, the number of documents. They uh, decreased the types of documents that they would accept. And you have to have your birth certificate for a new state ID. You can't just bring in your old state ID. They also, they added a lot of security into the IDs themselves. Like people actually don't realize how high tech the security is that is in your IDs. And they just did that all overnight. They didn't have to tell the American people. They didn't have to tell anybody. They could just do it. So then what happened is we by making the IDs harder to get, 
because we're trying to do it for security purposes, we actually ended up cutting out 26 million people who need IDs, but for whom those requirements made it almost impossible. And so that's why this is a new issue. And it feels like this is like something no one heard of and like it's a sort of sudden shift. And it's because it was a sudden shift. And yeah. it just, it, you know, we sort of did what we do and like overreacted and didn't think about who we would be impacting. Right, right, right. So this is the cynic in me <laughs> wondering, do you think that the people who are crafting these new voter ID laws are aware of this problem, of this crisis that well, we yeah, made it that's, Well, that's, that's why it all happened at the same time. Yeah, right, so, I right, mean, right, right. We know that we do because there's plenty of video and quotes and all sorts of things is that, you know, they're all of a sudden were all these people who couldn't get IDs and um, Alec and Republicans here, they're so smart. They're so good at seeing opportunities and seizing them and then mm-hmm. strategically implementing them across the country. I'm so jealous. Uh, and they immediately <laughs> saw this gap and they're like, oh, and that's why, you know, voter ID laws are brand new. And that's why Shelby County Beholder happened in right. 2013. And right. then all of a sudden, you know, we've increased and like all of this has happened at the same time. And, you know, the 9-11 Commission and the DMVs after 9-11, they weren't trying to exclude anyone. They just didn't think about it because we never do, right? We don't think about vulnerable populations when we make decisions. But because they did that, the repercussions have been extreme on so many levels, on every single level. And one of them is that, yes, absolutely, the people who came up with voter ID laws saw an opportunity and they took it. Right. You're you're right. I've had this conversation a few times. They are very good at this, at seeing opportunities and exploiting them to further marginalize people. We saw that, you mentioned a few good ones, but we saw that also with Project Red Map, right? That kind of hole in the system of making these congressional maps that disenfranchised, you know, marginalized groups, which is another way that they, you know, took advantage of a, of a problem or an, an opening and they, you know, kind of screwed everybody, <laughs> to put it bluntly, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, speaking of vulnerable populations, there's this quote in the book that really stood out to me. You said punishment in America is directly proportional to privilege, right? And you were talking about the problem that people who've been incarcerated have with getting their IDs. And you compare that to people who have a lot of privilege, like George Bush, right? Like Dick Cheney and Ted Kennedy, all people who had some scrapes with the law or DUIs when they were younger, but somehow they went on to get their IDs and, you know, have these really privileged, powerful lives. Tell me more about that. What is it within our system that makes this problem a non-issue for wealthier people? Right. Because I was thinking about the DMV. It's like you never see wealthy people at the DMV. It doesn't feel like it anyway. I don't know. Uh, there's a there's a rumor in L.A. and it is my life's mission to find out if this is true, that there is a special DMV for celebrities. And I am desperate to know if it's true. <laughs> I know it's true. I've been in every DMV in Los Angeles, except that one. And I know it's not the Hollywood DMV because I'm there all the time. And it's terrible. Uh, so that's not true. They're very nice. Uh, but I, I'm desperate to find out. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is. We 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 know in this country, I think it is, it is by far not a secret that the criminal justice system is wildly biased, right? Um, and that if you are wealthy, particularly, but especially wealthy and white, that your chances of being punished at all the same way as someone who is not, or even if you're not wealthy. So there is this really good documentary. I can't think of what it's called. Uh, it came out last year, but it's about this uh, this white guy who um, I think his last name is Painter because he is an artist and it's like a hilarious last name. <laughs> but he he was a, a young man and, you know, had some drugs on him and he was went to court and the guy before him was a black man 
who had fewer drugs on him and got this incredibly harsh sentence. Mm -hmm. And then he went up in front of the judge, who of course was also a white man, and the judge said, you know, I really see myself in you. I really think that you can rehabilitate, et cetera. Uh, you know, I really believe in you. And he gave him a really, really light sentence. And this like really struck this kid. And he was like, that, this is absolute utter bullshit. And he totally saw what's happening. And so he actually ended up going to jail and like starting this art program and he does really incredible things. But one of the reasons that that really stuck out to me is that he was not a rich kid. He was a poor white kid, but still the judge saw himself in him, right? And now yeah. this is why we need representation at all levels. Yes. Um, but this is, you know, the same thing. You know, I, I when I talk about some of our illustrious Americans and their problems with DUIs or killing people in cars and then still being able to be president or senator or whatever, I talk about it because uh, we had a client who hadn't had his ID in 40 years because in the, I guess, 70s, 80s, most um, of the 80s, he got a DUI. But the fines that were attached to it were so extreme for him, right? There were thousands of dollars, which has never been a problem for the Bush family or the Kennedy family, but for him was absolutely impossible. So he could never get another driver's license. And so he was never able to get a job, like a legal job. You know, he was, he was always an ID. He lived with his mother forever, et cetera. And it just completely ruined his life. <laughs> and of course, those fines, they grow with interest, et cetera, et cetera. So there was just no, you know, and so... It is, it's something that we see constantly. You know, I don't have any wealthy clients. Yeah. Wealthy people don't have a problem getting their birth certificates and spending the $41 on an ID, right? Like that, that is not an issue. None of my clients are rich. They're all people who not only are vulnerable, but often who started out from very vulnerable circumstances. Not always, because I think we as a country do not realize that we are all two medical emergencies away from being homeless. And I've had, you know, I had a client and she had, she went to Columbia, you know, and like we have clients all the time who are well-educated or whatever and who have ended up unhoused. But very, very, very often, we, our clients are people who started very humbly, you know, who were foster youth, who, you know, uh, we had a client who grew up in a tent on Skid Row, right? Because his family was unhoused. There are a lot of children who are unhoused in America, you know, or people who just lived in poverty or people who didn't have someone who could help them, uh, who were incarcerated, whatever, because we, we make it so hard to break out of our socioeconomic boxes in this country. Yeah. And if you're wealthy... Or even middle, you know, like if I, I knock on wood, right, but we'll probably never be in a situation where I can't get $30 and a ride to the DMV, right? Right. I have, you know, I'm a lawyer. I have a bunch of friends who are overeducated. I have a bunch of overeducated family and I've got a grandma. Like I always have somebody who can help me. That is not the case for a lot of people who grow up in their entire families are usually in the same economic bracket. And so we end up with this just complete polarization. And the reason that we don't know that these issues are happening is because we're so segregated by socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. that it is very rare that, you know, a lawyer is going to end up hanging out with somebody who's living in a tin-on-skin row. When would that happen? Yeah. Yeah. We have no idea. Yeah. That's why this problem is so invisible because although we've just established that wealthy people, you know, you never help wealthy people, but also you just need a little bit of privilege, right? You just need like a, you know, a a few hundred bucks in your, in your bank account. Right. And that's why the average person, most of us don't understand how millions of people don't have their idea. We we, like, we never think about it. Right. Cause who doesn't have 41 bucks? A lot of people 
don't have 41 bucks. A lot of people, right? You know, when I when I first talked to you, I think in 2016, our very first conversation, I remember asking you, why not focus on, you know, going back to voting, although we've talked about the fact that this isn't just about voting, but I asked you, why not focus on voter ID laws? And I'm curious as to what is the state of our voter ID laws? Are they increasing? Do we have more? Is anyone tackling that? Is there a legislative solution? Yeah, well, I mean, so look, my answer to you then was the same as now. There are a lot of very good people working on voter ID laws, and there have been forever. And it, so that was not a space that I needed to go mm-hmm. into because there are so many organizations, so many great lawyers. You know, I mean, Brennan and the NAACP and Mark Elias, right? Like, there, there are a ton of people working on voter ID laws. That being said, before Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, we had, like, around four states that had voter ID laws. And I say around four because... There was a lot of legislation. There was a lot of back and forth. It was very iffy because we still had a voting rights act. After 2013, when we had the 2016 election, we had 21 states that had voter ID laws. We're now up to, I think it's 36, right? Mm-hmm. So there have been a lot of people fighting against voter ID laws, but it doesn't work. It just it doesn't, you know, because again, this isn't something that's happening in a silo. This is something that's happening in a conjunction with 50 years of the conservatization of the federal court system, right? right? And so we are we are operating in a world that is pro-voter suppression, right? We now have a, a Supreme Court that will say yes to any sort of suppression you want to do, right? And so there are, you know, for me... I was looking at this and I was like, like, there are a lot of people fighting voter ID laws, but they exist mm-hmm. and people need these IDs. And also there are people like dying in the streets because they don't have them. So maybe we should just get people IDs. I think that, that you know, there's two sort of legislative roads. Mm-hmm. We have seen that voter voting rights legislation just isn't going to pass Congress right now or right. for the foreseeable future. Um, and I, you know, the last voting rights legislation we had, all of a sudden, all of these people who were pro or who were anti-voter ID, like Joe Manchin wanted all 50 states to have voter ID laws. And then all of a sudden they were all like pro-voter ID laws. I've, I've never had an angrier day in my life <laughs> than that day. Um, it so makes a lot of us angry. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, come on. Uh, but we have a bill in Congress and this is, you know, spoilers, it's the solution in the book. We have a bill, the IDs for an Inclusive Democracy Act. And what it would do would be to establish a free and federal a free and optional federal ID putting us on par with the rest of the world. This is also a uniquely American problem. There's any other country that has right. this issue. And so if we can pass this bill, then it would create a free ID uh, that would enable these 26 million American adults. And actually it would be 14 and up. So it would be you know, more than 30 million people who would be able to just get an ID. It would be free. They wouldn't have to get all their documents every time they move to a state. If they lose it, they could get a new one. It wouldn't go through the DMV. It would be distributed through post offices and libraries of which there are so many more than DMVs. And plus you could do it with a librarian and they're the best, right? And so, you know, my goal is for this, this bill to pass and for us to be able to just get everyone an ID. And then, you know, it's a federal ID, so they'd be able to vote, vote with it, sure, you know, particularly federal elections, which right now every state combines. Texas has a whole plan to split theirs because they're Texas, but <laughs> I haven't implemented yet. Um, but, you know, it would be, you could use it on an I-9 for jobs, you could use it for housing, you could use it to get government benefits, you could use it to open a bank. We have over 60 million people in this country who are unbanked. You need a, an ID to right. get a bank account. Um, right. you know, and we're moving more and more towards a cashless society post-COVID. Uh, I was just at a restaurant last night, and they didn't take cash, and the guy next to me only had cash. And the bartender <laughs> was like, "Wow, yeah, 
I'll take cash. And he and he he was shocked. I was shocked. I was like, how do you not take cash? And thank goodness his friend had come to join him for a drink. I could pay with his card. But like everywhere you go now, nobody takes cash. And so yeah. um, being unbanked is a real problem. And so so if we can pass this, you know, we also have we're working on a lot of local legislation. We have a bill in California that just passed the uh, legislature and is on Gavin Newsom's desk to be signed that would make IDs free. Our IDs are already free for unhoused Californians. It would make driver's licenses free and it would make birth certificates free for low-income Californians, which is huge. And so there's a lot of legislation that we can do. And I think that if we focus on IDs as an economic issue, they're a jobs <laughs> issue, they're a recidivism issue, they're a homelessness issue, uh, then it's bipartisan and we can get them passed. And then you know, if people are also able to vote with those IDs, great. But if we focus on voting, nothing is going to move. Right. If we right. focus on the fact that this is actually about getting 26 million Americans jobs, then that is something that can be you know, fought for on both sides. Really? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you had me there. <laughs> you had me there until you, I mean, here's, yeah. Here's okay. what what we are finding in Congress is yes to a point, right? Like there, there are right now members, honestly, of both sides, particularly of one who are just in it to make trouble. Like they're just chaos right. monsters, right? And, and like nothing is going to, to change their minds. And we just have to acknowledge that for, for everyone who is, and I, you know, I would put Joe Manchin on the chaos monster side too, right? Like at least both sides, right. you know, I, for, for most reasonable people, we are seeing that this is something that like people get this is about 26 million american adults not being able to have jobs so, like that is a thing everybody understands and you know when you think about like the tax money and you know we spend 26 billion dollars on homelessness every year in this country right like all of these things people get and so you know if we take it from a sort of center out approach then yes and then you just reach those margins and where nothing is going to be reasonable but we are, but if we ignore those extreme margins, then yeah, it really is a bipartisan issue. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I just, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking about the state of Congress right now and there are a lot of people, you know, and not just the outrageous ones. There are a lot of people that if anything has any inkling of helping humans, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a no go. Right. I mean, but I, I, I am, you know, for this legislation, I'm glad that it's there again, you know, People who are listening, it's in the book. I'm very happy to hear that. Um, yeah, we will see. Well, and this is this is also, you know, why we are very much working on state legislation. Uh, you know, I also so I'm starting my book tour tonight, and at every stop, either I'm being joined by either a politician, a local politician, um, or by a local uh, leader in the homelessness space. Um, and a big reason that I have these politicians joining is that I want them to talk about what can we do here now, right? So like yeah. tonight I'm in New York with Shahana Hanif, who is working on all of these different bills to increase access to IDNYC and to make IDNYC a more useful municipal ID, right? And yeah. so um, there's so much that we can do to increase ID access locally and statewide while we're working on the congressional bill mm -hmm. that it's not that it's only that. And so we're trying to take it, you know, to tackle it on as many levels as possible. Yeah. Yeah. While we wait for, you know, the chaos monsters to hopefully be shuffled out at some point. Right, right, right. Well, you know, on, on, on that note, um, that's, that's really good news. I'm so happy you, you're on your book tour. I'm very happy about that. Um, I'm so proud of you. And I'm really excited yeah. to see what you're going to do. And um, yeah, just, you know, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. 
Um, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I always learn something new and I'm always inspired. So thank you so much, Kat. Thank you so much for having me and for just being such a great friend. I'm, I am, I'm so thrilled. And I mean, you like read my book and took notes. That was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> of course. I'm ta- we're talking about your book. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. <laughs>